Hello, thanks for checking out the KZMC podcast. My name is April Zaire, and I'm an associate pastor at KZMC. This podcast is a recording of sermon teachings from our 9.30 a.m. Sunday morning worship gatherings. We release a new episode every Tuesday. If you're looking to check out our Sunday mornings, you can find our live stream over on our YouTube channel on Kingsfield Zurich Mennonite Church. We'd also love to have you join us in person. You can find out all the details about our Sunday mornings on our website, kzmc.ca. Thanks for listening and have a great day. I brought my mind back to uh, 39 years ago when I was invited by people from school uh, to come to this church. And uh, I knew some people in youth group. I didn't know all of them, but I didn't know any of the adults. They were all strangers to me. And one of the first adults I met in church was the MWF sponsors, and Ginny and Ken were sponsors at that time. And uh, I really appreciate how they uh, welcomed me. Um, and uh, they rolled out the carpet. They, they, uh, they accepted me, uh, a guy who was strange looking and talked really, really fast, <laughs> and integrated. I was integrated into the youth group with, with them and in, in some small way. Um, that welcome uh, led to me coming back and eventually uh, choosing to connect and be part of this congregation. So in a small way, that, you know, that time period opened the door for me coming up here today, this morning. Now, what I don't mean is this, okay? If, if, if things don't go well right now, it's not their fault. Okay? <laughs> so, just be clear. So let's hope it goes well, we'll see. Okay, uh, as mentioned earlier, Tanya sent in uh, announcements. She is at home. I want to say hi to my wife. She's at home. I just want to say she's not boycotting or protesting anything going on this morning. She's feeling under the weather, so that's who she is. So, hi, Tanya. Okay, so let's go back. Let's just pray. Lord, thank you for today, that we can gather here today together and uh, uh, hear your word. Lord, we ask that you open our eyes and open our ears and open our hearts to hear what your word has to say to us. We pray this in Jesus' name. At the beginning of this year, my goal was to read through the entire New Testament. Over the past year, I had some good consecutive stretches of reading the Bible uh, first thing in the morning, and it benefited me in a variety of ways during the day as I turned and contemplated what I had read and focused my mind on things of eternal value. That was a challenge for me. <laughs> Um, but, to, but, to, but, but to the chagrin of my goal, instead of moving on to the next passage on the next day, if something piqued my interest the first, first time reading through, I felt drawn to read the passage over again. So you got Pete and repeat. <laughs> and sometimes I reread it more than once. I did not do this willingly at first because I was not making much progress on my year-long goal. It was kind of embarrassing to tell you today that I've not made it, made it out of Matthew at all. And, but now, um, and it's, it's almost October, right? <laughs> but I have been digging deeper into Matthew and I now see the benefits of doing so. I'm beginning to see more of what's on God's heart. So what exactly has been piquing my interest while I've been reading the book of Matthew? Well, there's been a few things, actually. One was the, the Jesus genealogy in Matthew 1, and I spoke about that earlier this year. Another one is geography, and that's what I'm speaking on today. 
And there's a, I have a, some slides here, and I asked Poppy to, there we go. Uh, when I was reading the book of Matthew early this year, these geographical locations in uh, chapter 4, verse 25, were mentioned. It piqued my interest. Large crowds from Galilee. Now, Jenny mentioned 10, it was a different translation, but it's Decapolis. And you know what? I was kind of hoping that she would say that, because I'm not sure if I say it right, but she said 10 cities. She got the good version. Jerusalem, Judea, and the region across the Jordan. This is the NIV version. And the context is that these places are mentioned. Large crowds of people came to find Jesus from these places. Now, questions came to my mind. How far did these people travel, and how long did it take them to get there? That's what came to mind. That's what piqued my interest. And looking at these geographical names listed, where were these places located? Of course, I've heard of Jerusalem. It is the only city listed in this whole group, and it's still the famous city in uh, Israel today. I've heard of Judah, and it was a region, uh, but I didn't know where the boundaries were of that region. I've heard of the Jordan River, but I didn't know what, where the region across the Jordan was. I wasn't even sure where the Jordan River was in relation to the region of Galilee. And the Capolis, or the Ten Cities, as, um, as Ginny mentioned, I didn't know where it was, and I didn't even know uh, what it was. I wasn't even sure how to pronounce it correctly, as I was saying. Um, where was Jesus at this time? Matthew says Jesus was in the region of Galilee, which is in northern Israel. Uh, Nazareth, Capernaum, Cana are all familiar-sounding names of towns located in this region, just west to this, of the Sea of Galilee. We all know that all four Gospels, uh, Jesus and his 12 disciples travel all over Israel. But here, at the beginning of Jesus' public ministry, Jesus had not traveled beyond the region of Galilee yet. So to find the answers to those questions, and how far did these people travel, and how long did it take them to get there, I did three things. First, I found a map of Israel from Bible times, and they easily found all those places on the map. Then, I used Google Maps to cross-reference those areas from the Bible times to their current geographical locations as where they are today. And then, using those uh, current geographical locations, I used Google Maps to determine the distance between Galilee and those places mentioned. I changed the settings from driving to walking, and I got an estimated time it would take to walk between these places and Galilee. I used Capernaum, a town on the shore of uh, the Sea of Galilee, as mentioned as in Matthew 3, as where Jesus lived. And it's a point, as a point for the geographical, I put something in there. <laughs> Hopefully, I got a map here now. Uh, I, I Googled, like for that map, I asked for, for the PowerPoint, and there it is there. It's kind of small, but uh, hopefully it can aid us to get a grasp of where everything is. So at the top is Galilee in the north there. See that there? And it has the names of Cana and Nazareth and uh, Capernaum's there too and some other names there. So right in the top there. So what I found is that if you walk across, like up and down Galilee, it'd take about 14 hours to go from the top to bottom, and about 10 hours to go across or so. Um, and then I'm going to walk over here. If you kind of like went to like 
but here's the Jordan River here. And then, so just the other side of Jordan is this area here, the green area and a little bit there. That's the other side of the Jordan, the region beyond Jordan. And then you got the capitalists or the 10 cities. And you got, and, and you swing an arc. This, this would be about 20 hours to here. And then there's an arc here like this. If you do an arc from the north through Jerusalem around here, it'd be about uh, 30 hours walking. And if you came from the bottom edge of Judea, it'd be about 40 hours to walk up top. I didn't factor in that they might have to go around Samaria um, because they didn't do that. They tried to avoid that. And I didn't account for bridges across the Jordan, how that'd be. I just, you know, what do I do? I'm just, I, have a, I have a job. <laughs> I work, I work hard. Yeah, anyway, I can fax everything there. So anyway, we get kind of a drift there of what's happening there. Is that, can you guys get that or what? See that? Okay, all right. Let me find myself here, here. So, 30 hours average if for the main section of from the bottom to the side and an arc. That's how I used 30 hours. Our family took a 30-hour drive out to Western Canada to visit our son Andrew and our pregnant daughter-in-law, who's pregnant with our first grandchild, this past summer. And we were found out that, that, on that trip that they were expecting, and they, we were thankful they announced while we were there. Uh, we went over the top through the northern Ontario. It took 30 hours of driving, uh, of drive, actual driving, but it took us three days. We've did many trips to Saskatchewan over, over the past few years, and we normally go through the United States with a single night sleepover. But this time, we were bringing our younger boys, and it seemed like uh, too much to drive two big 15-hour days. So, with no broccoli farm to rush back to, we decided to take our time and enjoy the scenery uh, with lots of stops to get out and walk around. And we even had time to uh, meet Warren and Jenny, who were coming back from visiting their boys the other direction, uh, just near Lake Superior, and we did a little hike around a waterfall. So it was kind of good to connect with them. Hi, Warren and Jenny, if you're, if you're there uh, on, online. I would imagine that um, we had 30 hours of driving in an air-conditioned van with Bluetooth. We had games. We all had our personal devices. We had Google Maps for directions. We booked motel rooms in advance. It was a good and comfortable 30-hour drive. I'd imagine that 30 hours of driving would be much different than 30 hours of walking 2,000 years ago without any of those modern conveniences that we had in our trip. With the need to haul all of our one's own necessary supplies, the walking experience would be a more like a lengthy backpacking hiking trip. Factor in the needed human endurance to physically walk in all weather conditions and if there's kids in tow or aging parents, you can only travel as fast as the slowest person in your group. With these frequent stops to rest and recover, how many days back then would it take to walk those 30 hours to go up there? And let's look again at the scriptural co context. The trip would not get easier with the following information. And can you please go to the next slide? This is the NIV version. So, people brought to him, Jesus, all who were ill with various diseases. These people were ill. And it says they were suffering severe pain and the demon-possessed and them having seizures. And it doesn't say seizure, it says seizures, plural, and paralyzed. A few weeks ago, Tanya and I had a night out and we dropped the boys off at each of their friend's house uh, nearby, just near Goderich. Some of the, one of our kids fell asleep before we came back to pick them up. And when he woke up, he was upset. 
He was exhausted from a very big day of school and then playing hard with his friends. And he was coming down with something because he complained his throat hurt. He cried all the way home. Tanya asked if she can comfort him by sitting beside him, and he would have none of that. And I myself was not handling the drive too well either. I was totally gripping the steering wheel, enduring the crying and the wailing. Knowing in my head that he was tired and sick and he couldn't help himself, but becoming still frazzled as the trip went on, slowly counting down the miles of the 30-minute drive home. <laughs> Thinking about my distress while traveling with somebody with distress for only 30 minutes, I can safely conclude that traveling with somebody with a high-distressed person for 30 hours, as the Bible says, suffering severe pain, being ill with various diseases, and having ongoing seizures, as these people did, would not be a pleasant trip for anybody involved. And with my inquired knowledge and experience of having my own mother paralyzed four years ago, I have a great understanding of the challenges it would take to travel a great distance with a paralyzed person. And herein lies the reason for these people to take this journey in the first place. The people were not on vacation, and they were not going out for an evening out like we were. These people were in dire straits. They had a great and tremendous need physical, emotional, mental, and spiritual needs. If they had the remedies for their own situations, they surely would have utilized them. But these people were clearly out of options, and, these, and they all had tremendous needs for healing. When the stories of people being healed in northern Israel, the map's gone, <laughs> uh, started up, that's fine, you know, that's good there, started to make their way around, I'm sure these healing stories had the, these people immediate attention, and at the same time, they may have likely received these stories with a healthy skepticism. They likely would have the same questions and concerns that we would have today, if we were in the same boat, of not having the first-hand information about what was going on. Were these stories of healing actually true, or were they exaggeration? How did these healings happen? Were there magic potions or new medicines involved? Was there some sort of scam? Maybe a, is this a plot to part people with their money? Was there a financial charge for the services they offered? And who is this guy who's doing the healing? Was he a prophet, a man of God? Or was he kind of a slick salesman or a deranged crank? With their great need of healing, they must have asked themselves, is it worth the risk to travel up to northern Israel? Considering the time it would take to travel, the financial cost, the distress of traveling with people in severe distress, pain, and illness. And after arriving, there'd be the trip back home again, either healed or brokenhearted with disappointment for not being healed. The scripture gives us an answer to these questions. We know they went. They went to, to find Jesus. And with the unknowns ahead of them, would they have wondered what they're doing was be considered an irrational act? And herein lies the motive for these and, and, and what was the underlying motive for these people? And when I thought about this, remember I said during the day I was thinking about it, a word came to my mind. Desperation. These people must have been very desperate. Now, by today's standards, I think the word desperate may be too harsh. In our culture, that highly values self-sufficiency, um, being desperate would, would likely cause you to be looked, upon, looked down upon and even pitied. What comes to our mind today when we think of the word desperate or a desperate person? 
Don't we think of a desperate person as somebody who is, who is willing to do irrational acts in order to fill a great need in their life and in their circumstance? Have we ever found ourselves in a desperate situation or circumstance? Maybe we wouldn't want to call it desperation with all the negative stigma attached to that word, but put another way, have we ever, past or present, had great needs in our lives or with the, with the, in the lives of the people around us who had great needs in their lives without remedies and without, rem, without the ability to fix ourselves? As I thought about it, I'll be honest, okay? I've been desperate plenty of times in my life. As a teenager, as I alluded to earlier, moving from Alberta to Ontario, I felt disconnected from my former friends in Alberta, and I felt disconnected to my new peers in Ontario. And despite knowing that my parents loved me, I felt disconnected to them as a teenager sort of thing, and maybe more. As a child, I read the Bible regularly, and by my teens, I felt an increasing distance and connection to God as I became more aware of my faults and imperfections. Surely must God must be disappointed in me, I thought. I became desperate for connection to people and to God. And when I was invited to this church, I found both. I found Christ, I heard his voice, and I felt his presence. And it was amazing. It was life-changing. And with his church body, I've been blessed with the lifelong friendships and connections with many of the people then who are here now in this room. And I just want to tell a story. I didn't write this down, but I just thought about when I was standing in the back of the church, the old church, just shortly after I arrived, I was standing there. You know, it's kind of weird going to a church alone, right? If you've ever done that, it's not so fun. A bunch of people you don't know too well. A man came up to me, he's early-ish. He came up to me and says, hey, I want you to sit with, sit with us today. Uh, you can be our son today, he said. So see how the churches are empty here? For some reason, he must move right to the front of the church, and I sat right between him and Doreen. And, uh, and it was good. It was awkward because I didn't, you know, but he was a nice, he was a good, nice guy. Now, Doreen was kind of like a bit chilled, you know her, but <laughs> you know I'm talking about. When I found out that she was a school teacher, I thought, okay, she knows, she knows what a punk is. She, she could see that a mile away, so I kind of get that. I just want to make a note, you know. Uh, do you not see, do you remember Earl, do you not see that in Ryan? Who, who Ryan is, how the same, he's a chip off the old block, that guy. I really appreciate Ryan, I think he's a good friend. Okay, I also value my family's connection with the Siebert family, and I'm proud that my kids call him Grandpa and Grandma. About five years ago, after being confronted by loved ones with the consequences of my long-term behaviors and choices, I was desperate to make changes in my life after being unable to make lasting changes on my own. I sought help, including counseling. I joined a program very similar to the Freedom Session that meets here Monday nights. I took an inventory of my life, and I'm working on, I worked on, I'm still working on personal defects that are in my life. I am continually being renewed and rebuilt by God's grace. I still meet weekly with a couple guys to share how we are all doing, good and bad, being fully transparent to each other. I desperately need this to continue on in my life. I don't want to fall back and be the same person that I used to be. I've also been desperate for other people in my life on behalf of them. Watching my mother, who was a very independent person, and she was a world traveler in the previous 20 years of her life, 
She traveled to every continent on the planet except Antarctica. And she came close. She took a cruise down the southern tip of, uh, of, um, of South America. She was close, but not quite, not quite there. Um, and then when she suffered her paralysis and all that entailed, it was devastating to her and it was devastating for us as a family. I just want to mention that my mom received tremendous support and care throughout, her, throughout this time from her family, friends, and medical professionals, including under April's care when she was in Parkwood and Mel's care in Huronview. Despite tremendous support and care that my mom received, having no feeling below her chest, mom could not, ex could not escape the chronic pain that she had above the area of injury in her back above that spontaneous uh, location of her spontaneous spinal bleed, which caused her paralysis. She had pain all the time. And that was just ironic. <laughs> Combined with that, her isolation and loneliness of being in hospital rooms and rest home rooms alone, and a deep, deep grieving and depression from all of her losses. And there was many, many losses which I saw firsthand. That marked the remaining years of her life. Back in 2008, when my mother-in-law was diagnosed with stage four ovarian cancer, and then over the next four years, we had the horrible front row seat to witness her being slowly robbed of everything except her faith, her family, and her friends, but robbed of everything else, including her life. If there was an opportunity presented to me, like in Luke 4, to take my paralyzed mom or my cancer-stricken mother-in-law and bring them to a man, uh, like the man, Jesus, far away, who could both heal one or both of them, there's no question, in the desperation that we witnessed in their lives and our family's desperation in response, me and my family would have done everything we can to get them to this man, traveling 30 hours and all that entailed. I would assume that most people here, or all the people in this room, can easily identify with personal desperation or with desperation on behalf of a loved one around them in the need of healing, in the need of uh, restoration, in a variety of different needs and capacities. Whether we use the word desperation or not, I think we all know it's like to be in a deep, deep, deep need to be in need of help beyond our own remedies and beyond help among ourselves. And I don't think I'm wrong with that. I think everybody here knows that. I want to shift gears right now. I want to put these thoughts on hold. And I want to come back to them shortly. I want to focus on the who. Who are these people traveling to see? And that is, of course, Jesus. And um, we've got a slide coming here again. Let's look at Matthew chapter 3, the chapter before the chapter of today, where John the Baptist completed um, Jesus' baptism, and I'll read it. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven opened up, and we saw, we saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice, a voice you could hear from heaven, this is my son, whom I, who I love, and I am well pleased. Here at this location, God revealed himself publicly as the Trinity. We have God the Father who's present and speaking audibly for people to hear over his son, Jesus, who's standing right there among them. 
and the Holy Spirit, clearly visible to all, descending and alighting on Jesus. And I had to look up the meaning of the word alighting. It means to descend and lodge. So the Holy Spirit was lodged into Jesus. God showed up and made himself known. Why? The answer to that question caused my attention to be turned back towards the beginning. Not just of Matthew, not just the beginning of Matthew, but to the very beginning. God created mankind for connection and intimacy, dwelling with each other in the Garden of Eden. Then mankind chose to turn away from God, resulting in disconnection and separation. And from there on, we see God's response throughout the entire Old Testament, a response of a desperate invitation inviting his people to come back to him. God introduced the covenant. He introduced the law, which highly detailed how man can reconnect with God. He, uh, he, he had judges come to rescue them. He had kings come to lead them. And God sent prophets to speak to the people throughout the entire Old Testament. And the message was the same, a continual, repeated message. Come back. People, please come back. Stop what you're doing. Turn away from those things. Just come back to me. In the story of the prophet of Hosea, God clearly illustrates his motivation for this message. God told Hosea to love his wife, quote, as God himself loved Israel. God chose the marriage relationship to illustrate his love for his people here in the Old Testament and also in the New Testament where Christ is the bridegroom and, and the church is the bride. With the thought of marriage, we think of wedding vows and what are the promises? The promise to love, to cherish, to adore. While man's, um, man's love is imperfect, and you can just ask my wife, and maybe you can ask your wife, you can ask your wives, God's love for us is perfect. He consistently loves us. He consistently cherishes us. He consistently adores us. God's continual message from the prophets to the people, come back. I love you all so much. Much, Please come back. And tragically, we know the response of the people. They didn't come back. And then, silence. Four hundred years of uncomfortable silence. Silence, but not abandonment. Through his actions, through his words, God spoke to his people. If the people will not come back to me, I will go to them. This is the gospel message. If the people will not come back to me, I will go to them. God became flesh and dwelt among them, John says in his gospel. In Matthew 1, we read how God sent his son, Jesus, to be born as a baby. In Matthew 3, which we just read, this is up there, we see that God clearly reveals himself with his voice from heaven, with his son standing right there for all of them to see, right there with them, and the Holy Spirit to be visibly descending upon him and lodging inside Jesus, 
I will go to them, God said, and he did. He did. God's message has been the same all along. Then, repeated in the Old Testament, and here now in the Gospels, his message is, I love you, I cherish you, I adore you, and I want to heal you and make you whole. And now I'm going to come to you and see the, and make this all happen. Do you hear the desperation, this time on God's part? And that is not all. Jesus demonstrates and puts his tremendous love into, his love into action for us all to the point of dying for us on the cross and paying the price for our sins, the sins that separate us from God in the first place. And when Jesus rose from the dead, he did it for the sole purpose so that we could all be, rise with him and have new life. This is the gospel. This is the good news, which clearly shows to all the desperate lengths which God had planned to reconnect and restore, be restored to his, to his people. And in today's scripture passage, Matthew chapter 4, this is the location, the geographical, the, geographical <laughs> the geographical location in northern Israel, in the region of Galilee, we see an intersection, a meeting, a coming together of these two desperate entities. A God, through his son, Jesus Christ, empowered by the Holy Spirit, desperate to reconnect with his people, and a crowd coming, desperate for healing and more. Meeting here together in this region in Galilee. And when I say that people are desperate for more, uh, they're desperate for more than healing. When people came for healing, they received healing, but they did not leave. Nowhere in Matthew 4 does it say that the people, after they're healed, that they went home and left. Instead, this passage says that people instead, they followed. The crowd followed Jesus. Their, skeptic their skepticism or their fear they might have had that they had before they came is now gone. This Jesus, he wasn't a crank. He wasn't after their money or anything like that. Instead, the scripture says Jesus taught them. He proclaimed God to them as he healed them. And as a result, the people wanted more. They were desperate for more. Staying in Galilee, Galilee, they followed Jesus. Now we today are invited on the same journey as these people, as what we're reading about today. We are invited to bring our tremendous needs and our inability to fix ourselves in desperation we can come to Jesus too. And as we come, we can discover too that God, the Father, His Son, and the Holy Spirit have already started the journey to come towards us. We were, we were not abandoned. We were not abandoned. abandoned. God has been desperate to reconnect with us, to love us, to cherish us, and to heal us. And the Gospels clearly tell that, tells that to us all. We do not have to come to God alone. We can invite other people around us to join us, our family members, our friends, our neighbors, and the people we encounter on our journeys throughout the world around us. Together, 
desperate to be healed and to be made whole, we can all take the risk and come to Jesus. And when we find him, and when we are healed, and when we are being restored, and I don't mean it as a one-time event, but continually, like the people in the scriptures today, we can continue to follow him. We don't have to go back to where we came from, and we don't have to be the same people we were before. We, we are invited to continue to follow Jesus. And just like the banner over here that says, that says we are called to follow, be followers of Jesus Christ. And this banner over here, we can invite other people's, we can invite people along with us. Now, last night, I was up really late making those banners, and this morning I hung them up. <laughs> so I hope you guys appreciate my efforts. Okay, just course some. They've been here all along. They've been here for a long time. These banners have been representing our church's mission. Of course, they've been up there for a while now. But it's been our mission all along. It's been our mission through the pandemic, and it's our mission even though we don't have a full-time pastor. This is God's mission for us. It is his mission. It is his idea, and it's his plan. And it has been that way along. And our job is to follow him. We've been invited by Jesus to follow him, and we can invite others to follow him together. Before we close in prayer, in the next chapter, verse, Matthew 5, uh, verse 1, it says that when Jesus saw the crowd of people, and the crowds we're just talking about, he climbed the mountain, he sat down, and began to teach. Next week, I'll be speaking on what God has been desperately trying to say through his son Jesus to these people who are in turn desperate to listen to Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount. Okay, let's pray. Lord. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your invitation. We're thankful that you came to us through your son, Jesus. We thank you that you love us, that you cherish us, and that you adore us, and that you want to heal us and make us whole. We thank you for the invitation for us to follow you, and not alone with each other as a group, but as we can take the risk and follow you, Lord God, and knowing that you are coming for us. You want, you want us. You are desperate to connect with us. We thank you, Lord God, for your desperation. And we offer you our desperation. And we, uh, we, we thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen.